Second Peter 2, beginning in the verse 4, says, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. And Father, we ask, as always, just humbly for the help and the assistance of your Holy Spirit to just enable us to be able to uh, have an ear to hear what your Spirit would say to this part of your church. Lord, we pray that you would prepare each of us accordingly. And you know what that means for me and for every one of us in this room this morning. We thank you that you love us and have given us the truth of your word that we might understand who you are and who we are and what we need to know as we navigate our way through this life and Lord will one day step into the afterlife. So we pray Holy Spirit prepare us and as always we ask be our teacher and be our minister and speak to us in a personal and a direct way we ask in Jesus name expectantly and everyone said Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, how do you personally feel about the fact that a day of judgment is coming? Does that concern you? Does that cause you to feel a bit relieved that one day God is going to bring a day of judgment? And I guess most importantly, in regards to the day of judgment that God has scheduled for this earth once again, is to ask, are you prepared for it? The text in front of us, as you can tell by reading it together with me, deals with the issue of God's judgment. In fact, in this passage of scripture, Peter, as he goes on to particularly deal with the topic of false prophets and particularly the subject of the fact that God will judge them and they won't get away with their wrongdoing. Uh, Basically, as you can see in our reading, uh, addresses sort of different examples from history revealing the fact that God does judge and that when God threatens to judge, it's not an idle threat. That God means what he says and God fulfills what he declares and that God will judge ultimately and justly. And he gives three examples specifically from history when God has judged before to sort of validate the fact that, look, if God did not spare his judgment on this occasion and this occasion and this occasion, then the consistency of God's nature is not going to change. That God is going to hold true to who he is, he changes not. And the passage shows to us that God knows how to bring judgment. Though he may delay his judgment in his graciousness and compassion and mercy, he always will judge in time. He must judge in time. In fact, God measures time morally. 
Unlike we do, God measures time morally. And God also, in his judgment, knows how, we see from this passage, to spare the righteous and make distinctions in his judgment. Though we may not accurately know the genuine spiritual condition of someone else's life, no one will fool and mock God in regards to the things. God knows those who are genuinely his and God knows those who are genuinely not. And God will make a clear distinction in his judgment. And the prior verses we looked at last week as we began the second chapter, as I said, began to deal with this issue of false prophets and the tremendous danger of false prophets, because basically from God's perspective, as a loving creator and father, you have to understand when, when God looks at someone as a false prophet or a false teacher, particularly uh, God, in a sense, looks at that almost like spiritual kidnapping. In the same way as a parent, if someone kidnapped your child and had the audacity to, to kidnap your child, that's how God looks when somebody misleads someone with spiritual uh, you know, error in a wrong direction and pulls them in a way toward perdition and hell because of a distortion of truth that would have otherwise liberated them and led them into the things of eternal life. Uh, now, I want to just read verses 1 through 3 again because it kind of sets the context and flows into where we're going. Let me just read the verses again. We looked at them last week. Peter began in this chapter by saying, But as there were also false prophets among the people, that is in the days of old in the Old Testament, even as there now will be, he says, false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies even denying the Lord who bought them. Notice, and bring on themselves swift destruction, that they would receive the error in themselves for the things in which they were doing. They were bringing upon themselves destruction. And many, he said, will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, notice again, Peter comes back to this subject again, verse 3, for a long time their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. So three times within three short verses, Peter is dealing with this issue that nothing that these false teachers are doing is something that they're going to get away with. And three times he makes mention of the fact that the judgment of God would come upon them. Now, in light of that, that kind of sets the stage and now leads into, as he's emphasizing the judgment of God against the false teachers, that really here is what leads into this next almost sort of parenthetical section, verses 4 to 9, that deals specifically with the issue of the judgment of God. In fact, verse 4 to 9 in the original language is one long run-on sentence. Horrible English, but great spiritual truth. And it, it leads us into this parenthetical section where the Spirit of God prompts Peter with this issue of the judgment of God on his mind regarding the false teachers to take a breath for a moment and to deal specifically and somewhat thoroughly on the issue of the judgment of God in our verses. So he's just said in verse 3, follow the flow, that the judgment of God and the destruction of God is about to come against false teachers. And then to validate that, he says, verse 4, for if, 
God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. And again, did not spare the ancient world, but brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And then thirdly, he cites the example and also turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. So beginning with the first of these three examples in verse four, we find Peter here makes a reference to a group of angels who he says God has judged who God has, in a sense, incarcerated or bound and imprisoned in a place because of their transgression. You notice what he says in verse 4, that God did not spare these angels who sinned, but he cast them down to hell, delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved still for a future judgment. Now, the Bible clearly teaches the existence of demonic spirits, fallen angels, uh, those that are unclean spirits. Now, we have to understand all angels originally were created and were holy and good. They were innocent and pure. They served the ways of God and the will of God and purposes of God. However, Isaiah chapter 14, as well as Ezekiel chapter 28, two fundamental passages, teach us very clearly regarding a rebellion of a high-ranking angel named Lucifer, who held apparently a very high position of authority among the angelic host, and who chose to exalt himself against the authority and the rulership of God and rebelled against God and then the resulting judgment of God casting him out of heaven from his holy position and Lucifer falling and becoming defiled and ultimately of course we know more commonly and understand that this is a reference to who we now identify most often as Satan or the devil. And the Bible seems to indicate as well in the book of Revelation that in the rebellion of Satan that he drew one third of the angelic realm off with him in his rebellion, creating a class of fallen angels or unclean spirits, which we often refer to as the demons or the demonic realm. Demonic realm being fallen angels who pursued the rebellion together with Satan and they function under the rule of Satan and work in direct opposition now to the will of God and to the ways of God. Now, I bring that to your attention because obviously we can see today, I certainly can and I hope you can agree, we can clearly see today in culture that the devil and his demonic realm still seem very active and very clearly at work in our culture and all around our world. So that being said, they are not currently bound. They are not currently imprisoned and incarcerated. In other words, point being this, this reference in verse 4 cannot be a general reference to all fallen angels and demonic spirits being currently bound and incarcerated in a place of imprisonment that's referred to here in verse 4. What this is describing appears to be a specific reference, not a general reference to all demons, but a specific reference to a particular group among those fallen angels, among demonic spirits, who apparently have done something so vile, something so corrupt and filthy from God's divine perspective, 
that it required and necessitated God already restraining them prior to the day of his ultimate judgment in a way whereby they would be chained and incarcerated basically to protect humanity until the time of the future judgment of God that is still coming, which will deal both with Satan and his fallen spirits as well as humanity as well. Jude chapter 6 gives us this insight. It says, The angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode He, that is God, has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now, we can't be dogmatic, but it seems very likely that what this could be is a description regarding an event, a very bizarre, distorted event that seemed to have happened in the book of Genesis in chapter 6 prior to the time of the flood of Noah, where the Bible records in the days prior to the flood it seems that there was some perverse, distorted intermingling that took place between fallen angelic spirits that had relations with women among humanity, producing a distorted race and a distorted line, sort of crossing a line among creation and violating a boundary whereby the the proper genetic line of humanity was so distorted it probably was one of a few things that necessitated and required God then to flood the earth to cleanse the line of humanity that had become somehow so distorted by this perverse intermingling of relations between demonic spirits potentially inhabiting the body of people I I don't have an explanation of it I don't fully understand what took place, but it seems that something vile and corrupt took place between the intermingling of demonic spirits and and women in some way. And thus we read in verse four, as a result of that and that particular group of fallen angels, that God did not spare those angels who sinned, but he cast them down into hell. The term there literally is Tartarus. Only time we find it used. He cast them down to Tartarus and delivered them into chains of darkness, incarcerated and bound them to then be reserved or kept for judgment, for a greater future judgment that was still to come. Again, cast to hell, that word Tartarus refers to a prison of lowest darkness. And notice it says that they are right now being delivered. They have been put into chains. They're held in an imprisoned state reserved for a further judgment. And the point that Peter's making here for us in verse 4 is simply this. Is if God did not spare, if God did not spare erring and evil spiritual beings, which are much more powerful than human beings, if God did not spare evil and erring spiritual beings then what would ever hinder god from dealing with evil weak human beings see the point peter wants to get across is it is indeed a dangerous thing for these false teachers or really for any person to think somehow that they can rise above the judgment of god somehow And this was a problem, clearly, and is still to this day a problem, with those who are false teachers. They think somehow they uh, can arrogantly work their systems of corruption and that somehow they will never be held to account for the things that they do that are grievously wrong. And quite honestly, Peter is warning, look, 
All they are doing, though they are deceived regarding it, is making a very firm reservation on the schedule of God's judgment. And by way of application for those of us here this morning, I hope there are not many false teachers in our midst, but uh, if so, take to heart what the word of God says. But for all of us here this morning, let me just say this by way of application. If you are living in any way in defiance of God in some way, and you are transgressing known boundaries that you know God has set, whatever that may be in your life. But if you are living in direct defiance of God, transgressing known boundaries and actually thinking that you have gotten away with it or that somehow God is overlooking or going to overlook or give you a special pass, let me say to you in love this morning, you are severely mistaken and you are greatly deceived because God will not spare his righteous judgment. Galatians 6, 7 declares this, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. And whatever that boundary may be that we transgress sometime arrogantly and rebelliously and selfishly, thinking that somehow because we have such a strong desire, we deserve a special exception or this or that, and that somehow we're going to escape facing God and accountability and that somehow we're going to get away with it because maybe we've gotten away with it so far. Listen, you haven't gotten away with anything. All you have done is wired a little more time off the clock and you are just running out of time you cannot mock God the Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 13 marriage is honorable among all and the marriage bed undefiled but it says fornicators and adulterers God will judge a fornicator is someone who has sex with someone who they are not in a marriage relationship with an adulterer is someone who has sex with someone who is not their spouse that is married to another or someone who is married to someone and yet still chooses to violate their marriage relationship and have sex with another person that is not their marriage partner. And the Bible says that those in that place, God will judge. What does it mean? I think it means what it says. God declared it. I wouldn't trifle with it. We need to be very, very careful. This you know, again, sort of attitude of arrogance among these false teachers. We'll see it more as we go through this chapter where Peter says they're presumptuous, they're self-willed, they're brazen. This can happen to the heart of any human being if we're not careful in any pursuit or path of evil or ungodliness. And Peter is saying here, listen, if God did not spare angels, powerful, high-ranking spiritual beings... Where in the world would we be deceived enough to think that in our weak, finite human frame that somehow we can mock God and that God's not going to deal with us in a righteous way and allow us to reap the very thing that we're sowing? He says, verse 5, giving another example, he says, and God also did not spare the ancient world, but save Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, but bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. So secondly, Peter refers to a second time where God brought judgment in history. And here he refers to a time in the ancient world where humanity became so rebellious and became so defiant 
against God in their activities that it literally, and hear my term, forced God to have no other recourse than to judge them. God to remain who he is, both loving but yet holy and righteous, was forced to judge them. Now listen, we know, let's not be mistaken, we know from scripture and we know from history that God is loving. God is merciful, compassionate, and the Bible says he's merciful and gracious and patient. It says he's slow to anger, long-suffering, abounding in love, and God loves humanity that he created in his image. And God wants to have relationship with humanity. God did not spare his own son, but sent his son to suffer and die in our place for our sins we commit against him to try and offer us fellowship and relationship with him. He's demonstrated his love in that. And God, as our creator, more than that, even patiently and mercifully tolerates a lot of mistreatment from his creation. He tolerates a lot. He tolerates a lot of disregard and disrespect where we do things that in a sense it's like we're spitting in the very face of our creator. And he patiently tolerates that. And he mercifully tolerates that. And and this has been a repeated pattern throughout human history. Listen to what Isaiah said in his day. Isaiah 65 says this. The Lord says this. I've stretched out my hands all day long, listen, to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts a people who provoke me to anger continually to my face you want to talk about loving you want to talk about patient the God of creation the holy righteous God who keeps people's hearts beating and their lungs breathing and has given them and, and God says I've stretched out my hands to a rebellious people. A rebellious people who are doing their own thing and turning and God's still stretching out his hands even in rebellion. Saying, return to me. Return to me. I mean, we see the invitation again and again through the book of Jeremiah. God repeatedly says to a backsliding people who are defiling themselves morally, return to me. He might come back, return to me. And he beseeches them to still come and have fellowship with him, not wanting to judge, wanting to forestall his judgment. The Bible even says in the, in the prophets in the Old Testament that judgment is God's strange work. The idea is it's not his preference. It, it's awkward for him when he has to do it because that's not his preference. It's not his desire. But the picture Isaiah points here is like rudely instigating and provoking someone by brazen disrespect and doing it right to their face. And doing it in a way where there's no regard. That's why the Bible declares in Genesis chapter 6, God says, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. See, there is a limit. There is a boundary where mankind can cross that forces God's righteous judgment. And in order to remain righteous, which God must, there comes a point where God's divine justice must bring forth judgment. That is what Peter is describing here of what happened in the days of Noah in Genesis chapter 6 3 where Peter says here in our text in verse 5 that God did not spare the ancient world bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. Now the days prior to the flood if you read the 
the, the passages of Scripture in Genesis 6 through 8, we can see they were days characterized by great wickedness among humanity. Genesis chapter 6 says, The wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It tells us as well that the earth was filled with violence. The idea was no regard for human life anymore. Humanity had become brazen. They had become brutal and barbaric in the things that they were doing to one another on the earth in that day. It says, God looked upon the earth, indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way. The idea of the picture is, again, a, a time morally where there was a great wickedness among humanity. There was no regard for God. There was no regard for human life. There was no restraint. There was no sense of accountability for how anyone lived. People simply did what was right in their own eyes. They didn't regard one another and no one had any regard for God or any sense of that they were, would be required to give an account to God for what they did and how they lived their lives. Instead, humanity at that time was basically full on almost looking to create and invent the pursuit of new forms of evil. They were constantly looking, hey, well, we haven't created this form of evil yet. We haven't pushed this boundary yet. And this is what characterized the culture in that time. And God did not allow, Peter is trying to say to us here, God did not allow that to last forever. He could not let it continue perpetually. He eventually dealt with it by bringing judgment and not sparing punishment that was justly due. And I want you to take into consideration, yet even in God's judgment, when he brought in the flood on the world of the ungodly, even in God's judgment, there was tremendous mercy. Because what did God do in the time of Noah's day before he brought judgment? In Genesis 6, God forewarned Noah that judgment was coming before it ever came. Over a century before it ever came. He told Noah to prepare and to let people know that the judgment of God was going to come and that his spirit could not strive with their great wickedness forever. And remember, he tells Noah to build an ark for deliverance and for salvation so that he and anyone who wanted to could enter that means of deliverance and be spared from the coming wrath and judgment of God that was justly due upon humanity. First Peter 3 said this regarding those days. It says, God's long suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. God waited. He waited a hundred years. And for a hundred years, the Bible says here in our text that Noah was a, verse 5, preacher of righteousness. God sent Noah among the people in that day to basically be a representative of his heart, testifying to people that God was going to judge because of their defiance of God, because of their deeds of evil against God and their immoral transgressions that God's judgment was coming and Noah was testifying in righteousness listen God's warning his judgment is going to come and he also was there to tell the people listen there is a way of deliverance though this ark what God has told me to create it is intended to be the one means of deliverance from the coming judgment of God and if you enter into the means of God's salvation that is being provided you can be spared the coming judgment 
And for a hundred years, Noah, as a preacher of righteousness, God in his mercy waited in his long suffering before the judgment ultimately came. Yet after a long delay and forbearance, God did not spare the ancient world. He brought in the flood, but yet it says here in our text, verse 5, but yet he saved Noah. Saved Noah, it says, as well he became one of eight souls. Of course, we know who were those eight souls. His family. Now, let me just say this as a sidelight this morning. I think that's beautiful because Noah's eight converts, his eight followers, after a hundred years of preaching the truth of God, were his family members. And I have to step back from that and say, you know what, Noah? Despite what anybody else said, that's a pretty successful ministry. That's a pretty successful ministry. That in a world of wickedness and filth and immorality, that though others mocked you and ignored you and disregarded what you had to say, and I can't imagine the mockery that came upon Noah for what he said and what he was doing and how people thought he was out of his mind and too radical and too extreme with that whole thing, but yet his family was preserved with him. And you know what? This morning I bring that to your attention to say this. What is your greatest priority as you live in these dark and ungodly days that we're living in now? Is it to be successful in whatever your pursuit is? Is it to acquire as much stuff as you can or to have the most fun possible? Can I encourage you that maybe it should be making sure that every one of your family is right with God? Because to me, that'd be a successful way to depart from this planet. Might not be the most successful. I may not have as much stuff as everybody else's stuff. I may not have even had as much fun as everybody else had time to have fun. But all of my family is right with God. And they'll be with me eternally. And I love that Peter inserts this here regarding the ministry of Noah. Look at verse 6. We get a third example of a time when God was forced to judge historically. It says also... He turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning them to destruction, making them, notice that word, circle it, an example to those who afterward, later on, would also live ungodly. So he refers to how God also judged the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, condemning them to destruction. Again, Genesis chapter 19 records for us the conditions of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's very evident there that the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, the condition in that day, the culture was characterized by extreme sexual perversion. To an incredible extent, Jude says it this way in Jude 7. He says, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth in his example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. And from the biblical account, we would be dishonoring the word of God to not say that the sexual perversion in that day in Sodom and Gomorrah was predominantly marked by an open acceptance and the brazen practice of homosexuality. That was one of the predominant things that fostered and brought about the judgment of God. In that culture, when you read the passage of Scripture, it is very evident there was an extremely aggressive agenda among the homosexual culture that existed in the place of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
It was aggressive. It was brazen. It was quickly pushing its way forward. And listen, let me say this this morning. As I already alluded to fornication, as I already alluded to adultery, heterosexual sin, fornication, adultery, sex outside of marriage is sinful and wrong before God. No bones about it. Just as wrong. But I would be amiss not to let you know that when homosexual sin takes place, it is not only a sin against God, but one step further, it is also a strong violation of nature because it transgresses what is clearly natural. See, nature itself, ladies and gentlemen, nature itself testifies to a proper design of the sexual experience. When you look very clearly at the biological components of a male's body and the biological components of a female's body, it is very evident by nature it testifies that those things match. The plumbing matches. I say that to be candid, not to be funny. The biological components of a man's body and a woman's body, they fit. It's natural. It's evident the way the sexual expression is supposed to take place. Nature itself testifies to this. So when two males or two females choose to indulge in a sexual expression, they must ignore and deny the fact that what they are doing goes directly against nature. It's contrary to what's natural. They must ignore that very reality. Nature testifies that when a homosexual Intimacy is taking place. Nature testifies that that is unnatural. Romans chapter 1 verse 26 and 27 says this. For even their women exchange the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another. Men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. Interesting as the Bible references homosexuality that it even indicates receiving penalty in themselves for the error which is due. Listen, study statistics. Even those who practice a homosexual lifestyle cannot ignore the fact that the average lifespan of a practicing homosexual is close to 20 years shorter than those who live a heterosexual relationship with someone of the opposite sex. The very lifestyle itself brings about a punishment and a destruction of one's own body. And I point this out this morning for this reason, because once a culture like Sodom and Gomorrah, once a culture begins to digress down a path morally where they begin to cast off restraint and do things that are unnatural, it just begins a landslide process where soon there are no limits. There are no restraints anymore in a very short period of time of what's to be respected and held to as right or wrong. All restraint will eventually be cast aside. And it just begins a process of a moral landslide where soon no one will condemn any activity. Soon people will say, well, listen, we should have the right to marry the person we love. So if I, as a 40-year-old male, want to marry an 8-year-old girl, I love her. You're going to stop me from marrying an 8-year-old girl and having sex with her? I love her. She loves me. Who's going to say, well, I, I love my animal. 
You're going to stop me? And, and, and we may look at that now and say, that's ludicrous. Listen, those of you in this room who are older than I am, 10, 20, 30 years ago, where we're at as a nation, many people say, that's ludicrous. We would never go to that place so openly and, and, and so aggressively. Never. But see, it just begins a moral landslide where gradually all restraint is cast aside. And I want you to note the moral conditions that existed that hastened and caused the judgment of God to come upon that land. That's why verse 6 says at the end of it, it says that God was not only bringing destruction upon that unique location in that society, but he says, verse 6, the Holy Spirit points this out to us, making an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. In other words, God wasn't only justly dealing with personal ungodliness and corruption in that particular society. The Holy Spirit says to us here, God was also leaving a strong example to warn future generations and future cultures that would come afterward that may mistakenly think that they too could defy God's ways and never be held accountable for it. And the Holy Spirit of God is saying, listen, when God condemned them to destruction, that was one act of his judgment, but there also was a loving measure of God's revelation saying, listen, I'm making them an example for those who would come afterward in future generations and societies that would also choose to live ungodly. That word example means a pattern or a model. In other words, what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah when God was forced to judge them displayed a pattern or a model for anyone who would pursue the same practices morally and would work in the same way among their culture and think they wouldn't be held down. The Bible is simply giving us warning that God does not show partiality. It tells us in Romans chapter 2, verse 11, regarding God's righteous judgment, for there is no partiality with God. You know, Jesus himself referred to these very things directly and specifically. Listen to the words of Jesus from Luke 17, very clearly in regards to what we just looked at. Jesus says, and as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man, the coming of Christ. They ate, drank, married wives, and they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was in the days of Lot, what we're looking at in verse 6. They ate, they drank, they brought, they sold, they planned, they built. But on the day Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so, it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Jesus clearly, lovingly, faithfully made a declaration in his day to say in the last day's culture prior to the return of Jesus Christ and the judgment of God and the day of judgment on this earth, he said two things, that people will be engaged in the exact same moral defiance and sinful activity and the same evil practices morally that existed in the day's of Noah and existed in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Jesus said, you can mark. Look for those same defining marks in the culture. A disregard of life. Violence that's increasing. Gang, what do we see on the news every other day? 
You know, the brutality of, you know, this shooting here and this shooting in a school, the, the, the increase in proliferation of incredible violence, the increase of evil in our culture, the things that we're promoting and legalizing and, and, and just the invention of things that we're thinking, what, what is there left to invent that's filthy? What exists? But yet we always find something new to pursue another level of just filth in our culture. And again, what else existed? There was an aggressive, brazen advancement of homosexuality in the culture. And you know, can I just bring to your attention this morning, though it's not news for some of you, just a reality check of where we're at. You know, within the last 10 years... That's not a long time, historically. Within the last 10 years, we have now, in 20 states, including our capital of the United States of America, legalized same-sex marriage for homosexuals. Please understand, that is 40% of our country. In 10 years, 40% of our country has now legalized same-sex marriage. For the first time in history, two years ago, our president, Barack Obama, became the first president, and awful proud of it, in U.S. history to publicly, from a place of office, say that he personally supports same-sex marriage. A year ago, last June, part of the Defense of Marriage Act, which defined marriage between a male and a female, has now part of that been declared unconstitutional requiring the federal government to recognize same-sex marriage. Uh, this is a poll that I found recently. Let me read you the title of it. It says, Strong majority now believe that gays should be allowed to adopt kids. A strong majority, 63% of Americans, now say that same-sex couples have the legal right to adopt a child according to a new Gallup poll. About one in three are opposed. Young people were more supportive than older people. Among 18 to 29-year-olds, 77% answered that same-sex couples have a right to adopt. Among our younger generation, Almost 80% of them. And see, this is a paradigm shift. This is a paradigm shift from where we even were 20 years ago. That's what the whole poll is, is seeking to indicate. That not only are we legalizing and endorsing it and being forced to accept it, but now we're saying, but you know what? On, by the same token, as two men adopt a child, don't give that innocent child a chance to determine for themselves morally what is right or wrong, instead raise them in a way whereby they are indoctrinated to be forced to believe, I guess it's proper to have two dads or to have two moms. And, and, and the sad thing is, is, it says that 63% of our nation now supports it. Six, so it's, it's an overwhelming majority now. Supports these kind of things. Let me leave you with this thought and I'll move on for those of you who are probably already potentially offended. It's okay to be offended over a good thing, though. This is an article from a recent Time magazine. It says this. Let me just read you the title of it. The Transgender Tipping Point, America's Next Civil Rights Frontier. See, it's a landslide. Once you begin to cross a certain line, which the proliferation of aggressive homosexuality does, 
all you do is open the floodgates to say, hey, everybody deserves the right. The next civil rights frontier. See, that's the attitude of our culture. That's what begins to happen. And that was what marked a society that was fostering the judgment of God. And in the days of Noah and Lot, what Jesus was also saying, it will be just like the days of Noah and Lot. The point he was making there is no one expected the judgment of God to come. And can I ask you a question? Look at our culture. Does anybody really seem that concerned about the judgment of God? They don't. To me, what Jesus said has great validation for where we currently live. As he speaks of the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, in verse 7 he says, and he also delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked where he was living there in Sodom. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. So Peter speaks how in the midst of the judgment of Sodom, there was this difficulty of Lot living in those dark days morally and even a deliverance spoken of Lot, even though Lot seemed to have became a very carnal believer who kind of tarnished his witness in a lot of ways, the Bible apparently indicates he had a sincere faith and was therefore righteous because of his faith alone. Verse 7 and 8 call him righteous Lot and a righteous man. And in fact, it indicates here the Spirit of God that the ungodly immoral conduct that he saw and heard as he lived in the midst of Sodom and his culture, that those things were tormenting him internally. And I have to ask myself, and we have to ask ourselves the same question as those who are righteous if we're following Jesus Christ, what is our response to what we're seeing and hearing in the moral filth and decline in our culture? Are we apathetic about it? Or are we appalled by it? Are we vexed in our spirit and grieve deeply because we see what's happening and we understand what it's doing? Do we feel burdened? It should be bothersome to us. God help us if we're becoming so desensitized by the aggressive forcing down our throats through media and agendas, pushing things forward in all the different areas of immorality in our current culture that we're just becoming apathetic and desensitized and saying, hey, like the TV show, I guess this is just the new normal. So I'll just bury my little Christian head in the sand. I won't speak up because I might offend someone or be politically incorrect or I'll just kind of bury my head in the sand and I'll just kind of ride my way in hopefully into heaven and, and get there. God help us. Instead, would he baptize us with his spirit and fire to, to have the love to be concerned, to burn brightly for him in a very dark world. Notice also Lot here tells us in verse 7, was delivered before the destruction of Sodom came. Verse 7 says that the Lord delivered righteous Lot. I think that's important. Genesis 19.22 tells us that the angels went to Lot prior to the destruction and judgment of God coming and went to Lot as a righteous man and said to him, you have to get out of here because the judgment of God is coming. In fact, it says that they said to him, the angel said, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. In other words, Lot, the judgment of God is being brought upon this place, but because you are righteous, I cannot bring the judgment of God here until you are delivered from this place first to a place of safety. 
And I think that that's a beautiful picture there because it shows that the Lord knew those who were sincerely his followers and he removed them first. This is where Peter comes to in verse 9 where he says, Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Peter concludes by declaring the Lord in his past judgments indicate that he knows how to judge in a perfectly righteous way. That his justice and his judgment is perfectly righteous. Notice at the end of verse 9, those four words, the day of judgment. The, a coming day. There is a day of judgment that is coming. The Bible teaches that. Peter in chapter 3 says there's a reserved day of judgment Acts 17 says, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained, and has given assurance of this by raising him from the dead. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 7 to 10 says when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. There is a day of judgment that is coming, yet Peter's main point as he uses Lot as an example and Noah as an example being saved amidst judgment is he's trying to say, but God is righteous. And when God judges, he knows how to make distinctions in his judgment. And we see this pattern in scripture where God judged the ancient world, but he saved and delivered Noah out of the judgment. That God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, but he first delivered Lot and his family before the judgment was brought upon humanity. And if that be so, Peter says, verse 9, then the Lord knows how. He hasn't changed. The Lord knows how then to do the same thing once again, to make a distinction. You know, I believe that when the Lord brings his judgment once again, that those who are the church, genuine believers, will be spared the coming wrath of the judgment of God. The Bible tells us in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, believers wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus Christ, who delivers us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. God knows how to make distinctions, to deliver the righteous, and to deal with the unrighteous. You know, listen, gang, I'd say this in conclusion this morning. Our world is universally scheduled for a day of judgment once again. And the Bible makes it very clear that Jesus is both Savior and Judge. He's both. He is the one whom the Father has committed judgment to. And yet at the same time, the Bible also says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So whoever believes in him won't perish, but have everlasting life. And it says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Listen, Jesus Christ, the son of God, the savior of the world is both judge and he will bring judgment, but he also simultaneously is savior. And that means this this morning. How have you chosen to face Jesus? 
Who is Jesus to you? This morning, before you leave, be sure. Is Jesus your judge? Or is Jesus your Savior?